It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's uh, Henry Zamoda. Uh, Danny Abdeljabar is actually at a wedding right now. He is unable to join us, but uh, Joseph Solis Mullen is uh, is on the show today as a guest, and uh, Joe's been on the, fo- the show a couple times before. I think this is your third time, and he uh, provides a lot of uh, just great insight on on um, politics, geopolitics. So we're going to talk about. I guess the the current situation in in um, Ukraine and Russia, and really just how scary things are getting. Because last episode, I don't know if you listened to it, but you know I was making facetious jokes about how the invasion is going to take place on February thirtieth. Um, well, you know now I'm kind of eating my own words, and a lot of people have been rightly uh, pointing that out because you know I was really under the impression that it was mostly political theater that was going on, you know, since November, and I really subscribed to the theory that a lot of the media and a lot of the escalations were actually just cover for um, the Biden administration and Putin to, you know, negotiate some new deals uh, under, you know, the guise of, of, um, of a possible war. But, you know, I really thought that they has had more control over it. And right now we're recording at about 12 o'clock on February 27th, Eastern Standard Time, so Sunday, and uh, both of us have woke up to the alarming news that uh, Putin is putting his nuclear forces on high alert uh, in, re- in response to, uh, you know, Western sanctions. So we're kind of, uh, I feel like we're living in the 1950s, like the, the you know, I said this before uh, when we weren't recording, that we're living in the generation that our parents grew up in, but um I'll, I'll, I'll shut up right now and just get your initial take on everything and how you're feeling and, you know, what what's going on. Hey, Henry. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's good to talk to you again. Uh, yeah, as you said, woke up to some, some very alarming news. Uh, I had mentioned to you as well. I was also alarmed by the, the reports that Lukashenko was sending his own forces into Ukraine as well to, to back up the Russians, because that's, that's just a sign that things are not going very well. And, uh, obviously the, there, there are kind of two, two sort of ways that this can kind of carry on. We know there's at this point, as of 9am, uh, Zelensky had confirmed that there would be talks. They'd be Monday. There'd be no preconditions, and they'd be uh, right on the border there between Belarus and Ukraine. Uh, of course, he had rejected, uh, uh, what was it, two two days ago? I have a bunch of notes. I've been taking notes on this as it's developed over the last few months. So I have a bunch of notes here, but I don't want to get too lost in them. If we need to go into like real fine detail about days or times, I do have a lot of that written down. But 
uh, essentially Putin had wanted to do like another Minsk round and, and Zelensky had said no way. And uh, so, so the, the hostilities had intensified. We had seen reports of the Russians saying they were going to launch, you know, expansive uh, offensives in all directions. And there's been a, an aggressive shift, especially it's, it's been noticeable in Germany. I was going back through all the articles and all the blog posts and all the things I've written about this going back. And really, the only thing that has really surprised me, apart from the decision of, of Putin to go beyond recognizing Luhansk and Donetsk, which I thought was what was going to happen, uh, because it was just going to be solidifying the nature of the frozen conflict there, similar to how they did in Abkhazia, similar to how they did in Moldova, um, because uh, Lyle Goldstein, I know you like him, he had made the point that it seemed like things were, from Russia's point of view, going okay enough that you didn't need to invade the country. I mean, there was just no way for Ukraine to join NATO because it had this unresolved border dispute. And the border dispute wasn't going anywhere, and we all knew that. And so that, for me, was... I thought that the point for de-escalation came and went back on... I am going to go get this day. Back on... Back on the 26th, 26th of January, this was when the Biden administration had finally officially responded to the demands Putin had made back on December 17th after Biden had started warning about a possible invasion. And this was when the U.S. confirmed that NATO would continue its open door policy, which I thought was just posturing. And it was just this. This uh, it really reminded me of the discussions that took place under H.W. Bush's administration during the discussions about potential NATO expansion uh, beyond uh, West Germany. And it was that no matter what, no one outside the alliance, meaning Russia, had a veto on where where NATO could go. That was policy from the get go. There were lots of arguments about whether or not NATO should expand at all. Uh, but, but that was always a principle, even among people like, uh, like, uh, Scowcroft or Baker or Bush himself, Bush himself in ninth, shoot, what year was that? 90, 1990, I think was privately talking to aides about drawing up some, some ideas for Ukraine's NATO membership, you know, just as a hypothetical, uh, this was going along with the, the efforts to denuclearize Ukraine. So there's another, you know, what might have been, you know, there were there were people in the 1990s, John J. Mearsheimer, uh, most prominently, probably, who were arguing that the Ukrainians should keep their nuclear weapons, that that was the only way they were going to prevent something like this happening again. And uh, instead, under a lot of economic pressure, the Ukrainians gave a uh, gave a uh, gave up the weapons in exchange for security assurances, you know by the US and, and Russia and, and also Great Britain. And so it's it's definitely alarming. I, I I just this this has clearly not gone well from Putin's point of view. I think the the, the hope was that Zelensky would would jump jump ship and that they could throw someone up as a puppet. Um and that didn't work. And uh now it's now it's uh it's definitely spiraling in, in un, unforeseen directions I think by everyone. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? There's a lot to unpack right now. Um, I kind of want to explore 
Ukraine gave up their nuclear capabilities in the 1990s with, I guess, the expectation that there would be security assurance. Well, Zelensky actually recently made that point in, in Munich. And he's like, hey, listen, we gave our nukes away. We basically demilitarized, Ukraine demilitarized after the fall of the Soviet Union. And, you know, there was an expectation that there would be security assurances. So even though if we're not in NATO or, you know, even if we're not in NATO yet, like we honestly expect some some type of security assurance because now, like, look what's happening. I guess he has a pretty strong point as well because they've really just been screwed over uh, that country by, by both sides. It really seemed like Zelensky was expecting the West to come in and help. And that's obviously just not going to happen as far as this military uh, engagement. Biden has made that pretty clear that there won't be any U.S. soldiers. Even Adam Schiff has made that point that there should be no um, engagement between U.S. soldiers and and uh, Russian soldiers in Ukraine. And Adam Schiff has been the most hawkish, craziest Russophobe um, over the past four years since the election of Donald Trump. Um, you know, basically saying that coming up with the theory that there is a Manchurian candidate that's ran by Vladimir Putin in the White House for four years, which a lot of this, I think, has to do with, with Russiagate. And, and Russiagate obviously has led to um, led to these hostilities. But just, just to go back with Lyle Goldstein, Lyle Goldstein had mentioned um, Putin saw the... Um, he looked at Ka- um, Belarus, the color revolution in Belarus, and, you know, he... that definitely heightened the stakes for him. Um, there was also a alleged color revolution in Kazakhstan. Um, I guess the, the jury is still out if that was the color revolution or not, if that was CIA or not. I think that, you know, you could come to that conclusion. I myself haven't come to like firm evidence that the Kazakhstan um, uh, riots that took place a couple months ago was a direct result in like a U.S. backed coup or a British backed coup. But, you know, a Russian point of view, I think that's definitely what their perception of what it was. Um, I don't know. What's your take on all that? I know I just kind of unloaded a lot of that. No, I, I, I read the same thing. And uh, yeah, I think I think that the color revolution uh, against Lukashenko was, you know, and again, in, in Kazakhstan, it doesn't it doesn't really, I don't think, matter in terms of security concerns, whether or not the U.S. is actively involved in doing any of that stuff. So like in 2004 in Ukraine, when you had NGOs and, and other groups uh, coaching in parallel vote counting and, you know, uh, the U.S. State Department was pouring money into, you know, de- pro-democracy efforts and stuff like that, you know, um, I, I don't even think you need that kind of stuff. I just think that in terms of Russia's security situation, any kind of election or any kind of policy move, uh, you know, for example, the EU association agreement back in 2014, that, that, that just threatened Russia's economic leverage over the country. And all the way back, going back, I think, what was it, 1995, 1995, uh, Boris Yeltsin, you know, when, when the CIS was getting, getting first formed up and, you know, he, he essentially said that, you know, USSR or not, Ukraine is part of Russia's sphere of influence, and this was Russia at its, you know, weakest. And for a long time, it looked like Ukraine was just going to kind of stay in that sort of zone just because of a lot of oligarchic ties, 
Um, a lot of Russian gas flowed through there. So there was just, there was a lot, there was a, a, a joint holding company. I can't remember the name of it, but so there, there was a lot of mutual palm greasing going on there. Um, but I want to address something that you had just kind of pointed out there in passing. So I'm sure we'll go back to some of the more proximate stuff, but anti-Russian sentiment in the United States is it's just, it's really alarming. Um, seeing public figures especially tweeting things making public the tweeting things especially drives me nuts because it's just emotional reactionary off-the-cuff stuff you know like adam kinzinger had a tweet up for a while late yesterday afternoon advocating uh, a no-fly zone nato enforcing a no-fly zone over ukraine if Zelensky asked them for it you got people like the former u.s ambassador cheering false reports that Zelensky had circulated that Turkey, a NATO member, was going to block Russian warship access to the Black Sea. You got people cheering this stuff on yeah. like maniacs. I saw I saw that. It's that was so that was irresponsible. Like, that was crazy. When I saw that, I was like, there's no possible way that Turkey's doing that. This is just this. I, I almost refuse to believe that Turkey's putting itself in this is going to directly engage in war with Russia because that's basically what it was. If they're closing off the Black Sea so yeah. they can't get their warships, and yeah, you, you, like there's like a bunch of Ukrainian. I don't know if they're bot accounts or what. Part of the like the the lobby system that's been going on. There, there's been there was this article released by the Intercept a couple like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, just about the lobbying efforts from Ukraine, and that's something that I speak a lot about. About you know um, you know when you get into a war where you're and you're in a conflict, one of the first things that a side does is that they lobby the United States. Like for example, um, it's not just Ukraine. It's not just countries like Saudi Arabia and Israel, but like to, uh, the in the Ethiopian war uh, between the Tigray and the central the central state of Ethiopia. You know that there was a huge Tigrayan lobby in Washington that's kind of shaped the overall. Uh, opinion of that war and and uh, you know the how you know who the U.S. Uh, you know selectively condemns, um, but the the um, I just feel like the hysteria has cascaded into something that's really really dangerous. Man, I'm almost like you ever seen the movie Tremors? Uh no. Oh, it's, I'm about to be like anyone who knows the, the Gummers and Tremors. I'm about to start living like the Gummers. The Gummers were like these crazy gun nuts who lived in the middle of the desert who were always expecting World War III. So they were like, they basically had a bunker, they had guns everywhere, and they were just these nuts. And I'm about to start living like the Gummers. <laughs> just go out in the desert, and I'm like, all right, time to just uh, uh, prepare. I'm going to start prepping. <laughs> You and I had talked about it before we started yeah. recording that that I just think about someone like my grandpa who had to make the decision. You know, he was raising a family in the late 40s, early 50s to like, well, do I build a bomb shelter in the backyard? You know, do I stockpile canned food like just these these calculations that just have always seemed so hypothetical and so far away? You realize that. From from my perspective, and look, I should just put my cards on the table as well. You you've already done that, of course. I, I also condemn the use of military force to change borders. I, I oppose the the interference in the domestic politics of of any other country by any other. At the same time, it's hard 
to look at the chain of events that led to this and see it working out any other way. Obviously, Putin has uh, a maybe exceptional amount of freedom of movement just because of the level of control he has over his own state. I, I actually just have a I have a book review that I'm that's that's coming out this week of uh, Dr. Soro's new book. It just came out. It's called Not One Inch: America, Russia, and the Making of the Post Cold War Stalemate. Uh, and it's from Yale University Press, and and she she uh, goes back through the archives and traces through the 1990s the the evolution of of those negotiations about NATO expansion. She dives into the whole not one inch controversy, and uh, gosh, you know, in the end, I, I I have to agree with with what the with what the record shows in which which a lot of Soviets, including Primakov, who was who was no no Western, uh, you know, patsy, which I think is how Yeltsin and Kozarev and uh, even Gorbachev to some extent are depicted. Um, but basically, uh, let me see. Uh, I got it right here. Um, yeah, because I, I don't know. Have you have you ever looked into that? Is that something I, I, I can't recall if you guys had talked about that on the show, but it's something that comes up so much. The whole not one inch controversy is that something that, that you guys have talked about on the show i've listened to all your episodes but I, I can't recall so something that we've really hit on and, and um let me let me know what you think of this because i can i have a of a, a theory that i'm working out and i don't know if it's you know holds water but listening to putin's speech and the speech right before he recognized the uh the two breakaway republics it was very very vindictive like i think most russia watchers have are, are saying like wow we've never seen putin act like this like he's usually cool um kind of collective doesn't seem uh too erratic but he just seemed very um it was vindictive like he was just listing his gripes he called the united states an empire of lies um you know he it really seemed like a speech really related uh that that was directed to america saying we're done we're done with this and um i think he kind of holds this special resentment for how the united states acted after the fall of the soviet union so um in 1991 and here's something that ray mcgovern says who's um who worked who's in the cia who um used to brief george uh hw bush on russian affairs he would always say that something that George H.W. Bush did correctly was that he promised Gorbachev that he wasn't going to spike the football after the fall of the Soviet Union. There were written agreements. There were there was verbal agreements. Now they're uncovering that there were actual um, you know written uh, guarantees that the United States would not there there would be no NATO expansion um, going east towards Russia in return uh, for letting the letting Germany uh, unite. So. You know, one of Russia's biggest fears and, you know, the main reason why Stalin um, felt it was necessary to have all these different satellite states after World War II is because Russia was the main, excuse me, Germany was the main uh, launching pad for really probably the most brutal war on our, in the history of our planet, the, the Eastern Front of World War II. And um, it wasn't, you know, uh, I, I made this point in our, in our Patreon the other day um, that, a lot of Americans in World War II, they have, um, they, I have family who've died in World War II. Um, my, uh, my grandfather's uh, um, uncle, who was like his same age, basically, he was only a couple years older. 
um, who, was, who was very close to, died uh, in Normandy. Um, I have some other family members who, on my grandmother's side who died in World War II in the Pacific. And I think a lot of Americans do have relatives or family or extended family uh, that died in World War II. And, you know, they're, uh, you know we, we honor my great uncle Emmett. In Russia, people had their entire families massacred by the Nazis. Tens and tens of millions of people died on the Eastern Front. So it makes sense that Stalin, like in a geopolitical way, like it was pretty awful, the tyranny that he brought upon Eastern Europe and all these satellite countries, but it makes sense in a rational, in a rational way why he wanted to divide Germany and why he wanted all these buffer states between the uh, between the West and the East, because you know, in the twenty year period, um, you know the the first world war the first world war destroyed the government in Russia, and um, you know the second world war was a, a massive horrible thing, um, but they, they let Germany, East Germany, and and West Germany unite and to make Germany, and Bush promised them that in exchange for that. There would be no NATO expansion, so that's something that we 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 definitely touched on. But another thing that we we've talked about in previous episodes is Russia in the 1990s, and Russia in the 1990s. Like everyone kind of thinks that after the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, Russia became capitalist and the whole, and they lived happily ever after until Vladimir Putin came and turned it into an oppressive regime again. The 1990s in Russia was absolutely awful like it was one of the it was a horrible they suffered through hyperinflation basically the, the whole all the soviet state-run uh industries were purchased by just a handful of oligarchs um and 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 um you know i think a lot you know putin was was part of the yeltsin government but he kind of turns on the oligarchs once he becomes president i think a lot i think putin has this level of vindictiveness against bill clinton the Democrats, liberalism, um, and that vindictiveness came out in his speech. I don't know. That was a mouthful, but what do you think of that? No, I, I absolutely think we're on the same page there. Not spiking the football. This is this is the point that I really want to be clear about because this is something that has always fascinated me, and, and this book was just unflinching. I, I really admire Dr. Soros work that that she put into this i mean she spent over two and a half decades researching this she was a medical student in uh, west germany when the wall came down and she wound up changing professions being a journalist you know she went through the clinton libraries the baker library you know like all the papers uh got cooperation from uh the germans uh the russians and and basically i just want to just want to read you something here because I, i think this really captures it quite accurately what went down as far as the not one inch thing goes because it comes back to the idea of not spiking the football and it goes back to the idea of why wouldn't joe biden a month ago just say okay ukraine can't join nato which it couldn't anyway wasn't even close it was probably never going to happen while the spirit of their cooperation over the reunification of germany and the ending of the cold war was clear that nato would not take advantage of soviet russian weakness to expand the military alliance eastward no document made any such guarantee. Baker had initially pitched the idea to Gorbachev as a hypothetical. What if you allowed Germany to reunite, but NATO didn't shift one inch eastward? At the same time, the West German foreign minister at the time, Hans Dietrich Genscher, had given several prominent public addresses in which he 
repeatedly reiterated this claim. However, behind closed doors, Baker was immediately instructed by Bush not to repeat the phrase again, and he pointedly did not. Because the principle, even though there was a debate, the big concern was withholding, was withholding the Soviet Union together, actually. There's actually a great speech. It's called the Chicken Kiev speech. Have you ever read it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Bush Let's talk about is that. trying. Bush is trying to keep the Soviet Union together because he's worried about loose nukes and instability and all these things. So within his administration, the only decision about NATO was that it would remain, which I think was a mistake. But there were rationales that they had for that. I think they were wrong ultimately. But certainly, they they weren't really talking about expansion. But they were talking about the principle that no country, meaning Russia or the Soviet Union, could determine where NATO went. So that was a principle. And they fought very, very hard for that principle in the reunification of Germany. So, uh, but it's very clear what the spirit of, of the agreement was. And the Clinton administration had a very aggressive uh, policy. It was in part motivated by domestic political concerns. So you had you had the Poles and the Hungarians and the Czechs who really wanted in to NATO. And you had a lot of I come from Michigan and there are. A, so I know something about this. There are huge Polish communities that get out and vote. And in the 1990s, uh, they were a serious uh, force, like a like a press, like a pressure. Uh, and uh, so Clinton felt like that was a popular move. The Republicans really wanted to do it. Um, they incorporated that actually into their contract with America um, so like NATO expansion became a topic that, uh, you know, was very popular domestically, uh, countries wanted it. And basically Clinton and his inner circle decided that the Russians could just be bought off. And one of the things that I really applaud Dr. Soro on was her unflinchingly describing the nature of us interference in the 1996 Russian presidential elections at the absolute highest levels to ensure that Yeltsin got reelected, even though he was highly unpopular, even though he had murdered his own people, attacked the parliament. It was, they thought that, I think what Clinton said was, Yeltsin drunk is better for us than anyone else sober. And so they wanted to hurry up and just ram this thing through. And it was, it was, it was bad. It was, it was not good. You had people like Zvinyu Brzezinski, George Kennan, uh, advising against it publicly uh william perry who was at defense under uh clinton he really thought it was just a bad idea he was really trying to push the partnership for peace um which i, I can't remember if you guys have talked about that but that was like the idea that you would replace nato in the warsaw pact with a pan-european security architecture um which is something that emmanuel macron still to this day tries to tries to harp on but you know when, when Putin wants to talk to the West, he's not talking about Paris. He's not talking about London or Berlin. He's talking about Washington. And I think that's a big problem. But it's obvious yeah. why it happened. The Clinton administration so, then tried to destroy the partnership for peace and make sure that NATO remained the centerpiece of European security. And every country but Russia was on the menu, potentially. I don't know how that was never going to work out terribly resulting in the situation that we have today. So something that um, I've been thinking about is that um, I've been thinking, so I don't know if you ever listened to Radio War Nerd. Um, it's a podcast um, with, 
uh, one of the journalists who's on this who's on this show, uh, Mark Ames. He was a reporter in Russia in the 1990s, um, along with Matt Taibbi, and they were reporters in Russia. They were basically covering the Yeltsin government and things like that. And they actually he has a series on um, it's like a four part series on the Yeltsin coup. So when Yeltsin started shelling the the parliament because he was directly covering that uh, Mark Ames. And, you know, he was describing the um, just like the mentality in Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And basically it was just national embarrassment. Like it was the Clinton advisors who were in there. They treated Russians like animals. He was saying he said that they were very um, chauvinistic towards them. They they kind of thought that they were lesser beings, that they were just stupid Russians. And um, one of the reasons why Chabias who led the shock therapy campaigns in Russia was so popular in America is because he kind of looked like, you know, more Western European. That's what he was saying. Like that, you know, he was, he spoke perfect English. He had red hair. Um, he kind of looked like a guy from like, uh, you know, Finland or something. And you know, he made the point that that was one of the reasons why the, the American press kind of feigned over this guy. Uh, but he was a technocrat and, you know, shock therapy was really hard on Russia. But he go high, he highlights Yeltsin. And Yeltsin was a drunk. Um, he was a uh, incredibly corrupt. Basically, you know, the the looting of Russia took place under his watch. Essentially, like you know, his buddies basically purchased the Soviet-ran states, and you know, he can try to commit. He was manic depressive. He tried committing suicide a couple of times. Um, you know, there's a story about him in Washington. Yeltsin. Um, running around Washington, D.C. naked, like just with his underwear on, just looking for a slice of pizza. Um, he was just a embarrassment. Um, and the Clinton administration propped him up in the second election. This highly unpopular figure, they propped him up and they fought, They basically, um, you know, there's a, I forget, was it Time magazine or was it, man, you know what I'm talking about? There was an article about how like the United States came to the rescue of the Yeltsin is like a front page article. I think it may have been Time magazine. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I don't. It's um, man, I need to find this thing. Yeah, if you do um, send it to me. Yeltsin. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Because the thing, the thing that I thought was so destructive about that too was the whole idea that there was this triumphalism that... Uh, you know, liberal capitalist democracy had been the good one and it had triumphed. And so they bring it to Russia. Right. And what do people like Putin and people in the security services who have always been very skeptical and suspicious of the West see? Well, they see that outside powers 
control things, buy the elections, hold the money bags, and those who are willing to play along or break the rules can enrich themselves. Basically, the democracy was a total sham. Actually, Medvedev uh, had had made a comment to some some Western journalists when they talked about uh, Putin didn't win in 2012, and he said to him, "We all know that Boris Yeltsin did not win in 1996." As kind of I like a you, I just sent you the Time magazine. I saw that. The, yeah, Time Yanks to the Rescue: The Secret Story of How American Advisors Helped Yeltsin Win. Yeah, it's terrible. And, and it was at the highest level. Time Magazine. It's the highest levels, man. It's shocking that Time Magazine would run something like that. Yeah, I guess it was just more. Uh, that's how low we thought the Russians were. There's like, oh, and isn't it just so arrogant it? though? It shows you how little things have changed. That we can just kind of like cavalierly slap something like that on a cover, and then you know some Russians are like buying Facebook ads, and it's like, how dare you do that? How dare you do that? And this is not to minimize, as I said, I don't want anyone doing this kind of stuff. But it's like, just just the other day, uh, the New York Times was running this piece talking about how, uh, with this like glowing tone, that how the U.S. has secretly been training paramilitaries in Ukraine ever since 2015. It's like, you don't think stuff like that didn't get noticed by Russia? You don't think that that kind of behavior had anything to do with why we're here now? And it's always used as this retroactive uh, justification. Like, see, look how aggressive Russia is. Isn't it a good thing we were doing this stuff? And it's this self-legitimating circle. It's like, we move troops into Poland, Russia feels threatened, so Russia responds. Now Poland feels even more threatened. You know? And it's like, look how aggressive Russia is. And it just it's this escalatory cycle that brought us to this point now where... I don't know. Things on the ground are changing, uh, you know, very fast. I know that's something that you've encountered as well. A difficulty getting a good, clear picture of what's going on, but yeah. Well, I'm just certainly you know, I'm not. Bad. I'm not even bothering too much right now to look what's going to see what's going on on the ground, uh, just because, like, you know, when a war breaks out, there's so much propaganda from both sides that are being released that that's that's released that you really don't know what to believe. Um, where I was getting at before with um, the just the vindictiveness of Putin's speech. So like right now we're in a situation where everyone's like, man, what the hell is Putin doing? Like the sanctions are going to be so bad. Um, I, I almost feel like he's uh, he is he invaded Ukraine to uh, almost like reignite the Cold War and make a garrison states in, in Eastern Europe. And then for now on, he's just going to concentrate his trade in, in the East and, you know, kind of get closer to China and, and the Asian markets. And what do you think of that? Because I know, you know, your expertise really does kind of uh, lie in China. So, you know, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, you know, one of the things I, I had read, read several things on this several months ago that, that basically, I think one of them was in The Economist, actually, where it basically argued that... Uh, NATO is like the best thing for Putin because it gives him a reason to live. And so if you remember at the time, uh, there was just uh, they had had troops massing in the spring and then they started doing it in the build up this fall. Um, and, and it certainly has. It's, it's reinvigorated a lot of talk about, uh, you know, maybe Sweden joining NATO or something like that. So it's just it's 
it's it's really brought NATO back to life in in a way that I think several years ago it was it was difficult to imagine. Um, I think on one hand, it's possible too that Putin has been very very successful in his foreign policy uh, exertions, even though they have been uh, high risk moves in some cases. He has, in his mind, I think been uh, maybe three for three, four for four, depending on how you want to count. So I think he felt confident. I also think the election of Schultz in Germany with a very difficult to manage coalition government. Um, also, I think gave him. I, I think he I think he probably calculated that that would give him more room to pressure the Germans, um, because I, I don't know how much you follow German politics. I know I know you do somewhat, but. Um, I'm, I'm the no Germans expert in German up. politics. I know like the high level stuff with like you know the Green Party and and uh, the Social Democrats and I know that, but I'm not. I'm okay. no expert. I know Schultz. I know Schultz and the Socialist Democratic Party um, had a history of uh, being wanting better relationships with Russia. Yeah. Um, there was an, oh, there was a couple there was a couple of open letters from a lot of Social Democrats um, saying like, hey, this is getting out of hand. We need to start making mm-hmm. better relationships with Russia yada, 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 this is getting into yeah. a really dangerous situation, NATO expansion is bad and all that stuff, and reasonable foreign policy suggestions. Um, I know a lot of those guys who were signed on that letter were, were like prominent social Democrats. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. But um, over the weekend, over the weekend, I think we've seen a big, we've seen a, a little bit of a shift here because I, I think, number one, I think all the rest of the EU states, especially the ones that were uh, absorbed into NATO, uh, like Poland have brought a lot of their really rabid anti-Russian sentiment with them. And so I was reading stuff coming out of coming out of Poland uh, about how they were just, I mean, in pretty strong terms, uh, berating and deriding the German response late last week. And uh, so Annalena Baerbank, uh, who's the foreign minister of Germany, came out uh, over the weekend and, and was uh Pretty strong, I thought, in, in condemning uh, what what had happened, and basically said they they felt like the goodwill of Eastern looking Germans uh, had been taken advantage of. Because if you look at public polling data in Germany, uh, I mean these are good polls. I mean these aren't these aren't anything that that I would cast too much suspicion. Obviously, there's always a little bit of uh, subjectivity when it comes to using polling data, but like reliably, people in Germany vote that they would like better relations uh, with Russia. You know, there's a strong movement in Germany to like remove NATO forces from Germany uh, going back to the 90s. So I feel like politically the Social Democrats and the Greens kind of put themselves out there and, and I feel like now, you know, domestic political concerns are never far away, right? Especially when you're in a very fragile coalition government. So I think they now see the need to solidify uh, with the rest of the block. And, you know, it's definitely dangerous. Uh, like you said, creating a garrison state, just walling off like Belarus, as much of Ukraine as it can choke down. Um, I don't know. I mean, that, that would be a very, very dangerous situation and, and exactly what what sane people didn't want to see happen, uh, which was the end of one Cold War, just moving the line east. But as but as soon as it was decided that Russia was never that NATO was going to stay, that it was going to expand, and that it would ninety nine point nine 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 percent certainty never include Russia, 
even though Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and Putin had all pitched the idea. They'd all pitched the idea. The U.S. did not want the Russians at the table with them, have an equal voice. NATO was their thing. It was how they ran business. And they knew that if they let in, say, Poland, Russia's eventual membership was now impossible because it requires unanimous consent to take in a new member. So the idea was never tell the Russians no, but also make it clear that it would be very difficult for them to get in because of, uh, you know, this, that, and six other things. But sure, you know, definitely a possibility when in reality behind closed doors it was like, this will never happen. That was always going to produce a situation like this. People look at Putin like he's some sort of special monster. And I just could see a number of, of various Russians of his background from the security services who, I mean, it's not exactly unique for people of the military and security services to have maybe unusually high levels of patriotism, right? You're, you're willing to put your life on, on the line. And you talked about it. The collapse of the Soviet Union was, was horribly embarrassing. I mean, Russia, the USSR, Russia, people don't think about it this way, but like Russia was reduced to a size that it had not been since prior to the founding of the United States. Yeah, that's and that's, in this in this opposing military alliance just washed over and absorbed all these things. I mean, it's it may it makes everything that's happening now just seem just even 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 worse. I think because it was just so unnecessary. You know, why couldn't there just be a big neutral block of countries? Here, here's what I was. I texted this to you before, and um, here's like one of my really big concerns right now is Poland, uh, which you had mentioned before. We're seeing talks about Poland basically playing the role as Pakistan in the 1980s in the with the Mujahideen. Then potentially, I need to look more into this because I only briefly saw it, but I believe that there was okay. So there was a $6.4 billion bill approved for uh, funding, I guess, an insurgency, right? Like, am I reading this correctly? I don't know if you, you saw this. Um, I don't understand how that they could possibly get this, this, this aid to Ukraine right now. And there's talks about Poland playing a role as like um, a place where, where insurgents train, like Ukrainian yeah. insurgents tra- train. Which yeah. basically just draws a huge, like, target on Poland. Like, it draws them into this conflict in such a such a higher level. It makes it so much more dangerous. And the other day, I kind of made a joke to Danny, a kind of facetious joke, which I may have to really retract. I might, I'm, you know, I put my foot in my mouth a couple of times uh, while talking to talking about Ukraine and Russia. But I called him like, "Hey," he's not, he's like, you know, what's going to happen if they go up to uh, Latvia and maybe possibly Poland, and I said, "Hey, you sound like Gary Kasparov right now, the uh, you know the chess player, Russia mm-hmm. Hawk, who wrote this book a couple of years, like ten years ago, maybe called mm-hmm. uh, Winter is Coming." Yeah, and basically he's making the case that the Russia, the the West needs to step up and stop Vladimir Putin now before it's too late because he has an ultimate plan of taking over the West. And I actually read this book and I was like, oh, all right, whatever. This guy kind of sounds a little alarmist and nutty." And, um, but now it seems like that could be a possibility because 
like NATO seems kind of like a, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a piece of paper. You know what I mean? Like, if Russia attacked Poland or Latvia, let's just say that they said, okay, they, they use the pretext of national security, like there's weapons there that we need to take out. Does the United States, are these checks that these countries can actually cash? Like, are these checks of assurance that these countries cash? Is the U.S. Uh, ready to um, support NATO or honor Article Five in NATO? Um, you know, if one of these one of these countries are attacked, because we're risking nuclear war, and um, as many other uh, Douglas uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who am I? Who I'll, who I'll add, who has been right about pretty much all everything he said about Russia over the past. Uh, couple of months, um, he said that Russia was going to invade. You know, according to Douglas McGregor, the United States can't win any type of war in Eastern Europe against Russia. It's just impossible. It, it just, we do, the logistics aren't there. We wouldn't be able to do it. So does the United States trade, um, you know, Cincinnati for Latvia? Like, the, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Uh, well, I certainly think that in the 1990s, in their hurry to score domestic and international political points, the Clinton administration and then the later Bush administration, which was totally wrapped up in the mythology of American uh, super hegemony and permanent unipolarity, that they really didn't think about how they would defend the Baltics, because those are totally indefensible. And... Uh, there was a lot of debate about whether there should be different grades of NATO membership. And maybe not all of them would get Article 5 membership. And the Clinton administration very doggedly insisted that wasn't possible. Even though from the very beginning, NATO had different grades of membership. You had Spain, you had France, you had others, different kinds. But there was just this bullheaded, just the level of diplomatic hardball that especially the Clinton and then Bush administrations played with the Russians was just I mean it feels like Versailles treatment you know just creating a bunch of resentment and making a country really poor and hostile even though there's every possibility that it could rebuild and cause lots of problems later and so I'm not very sympathetic to anyone like Madeleine Albright uh, you know Victoria Newland, anyone really who isn't associated with the Clinton or the Bush teams like I just I can't stand anyone like that um Poland? Poland could fight. Poland could definitely fight. Um, and I think there'd be a lot of support for it. Well, the um, diaspora for Poland is so, there'd be so much support. Because you mentioned, like, you yeah. know, the Polish. Mm-hmm. The Polish and I think Michigan they could are, win. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it would be, I think it would be, um, I don't think that will happen. Like, I don't, I don't think that Russia will actually do that. If, let's just say, if Russia, if Putin's like, all right, you know, we've, we've, we, we've conquered Ukraine from um, from east to all the way to Romania right now. And now Poland is responsible for, um, you know, training and arming, let's say, Nazi uh, Azov Battalion insurgents. And, um, you know, I think, you know, there is a Nazi problem there, but I think a lot of it is a little bit is exaggerated. Like the denazification, like what does that mean? He's just going to find every single person who's ever had a SS patch on their on their uh, garment or is it just gonna is it like a list that he's making of people he just doesn't like I I mean I I, I don't know um, it sounds really vague yeah because... I mean in a lot a lot of it 
I think goes back to like the whole Stepan Bandera, World War Two. You know, uh, who was it? Uh, was it Poroshenko who uh, like wanted to do like a big uh, like a big celebration of him as like a Ukraine's you know big hero, and that really rubbed rubbed the Russians the wrong way because he was you know a collaborator. You know, and you had brought up the the idea that we we just don't understand the mentality of a people whose country has been invaded and razed to the ground and have had millions and millions of people die, you know. Uh, but like 1812, 1914, 1940, I mean, we have no experience of anything like that. And uh, you mentioned his, his hostility, Putin's hostility to like liberalism. I, I honestly don't know that Putin minds the fact that Western countries are liberal. I think there is an area near Russia where he doesn't want any liberal democracies. And I also think he does not like liberal internationalism, uh, which is liberalism as a foreign policy, which is what the United States has been pursuing, liberal hegemony, um, which is basically the idea that only democratic leaders are really truly legitimate. Um, but of course, one thing about that is it's always been very selectively uh, remembered or talked about. I noticed that the Saudi Arabians have been, uh, you know, receiving our arms very regularly throughout this period. The great democracy of Saudi Arabia. Very peaceful country as well. So I think it's, I think, again, like the whole experience of Russia with democracy and with capitalism. It just looked like a facade to the people who were in positions to capture the state. And so they did. And they carried with them a sense of grief, a sense of having been wronged, taken advantage of, sold out. Um, you know, a lot of the aid money, like, straight up disappeared. Like, Gorbachev one time was, like, asking his advisors, like, where did this uh, money from the Germans go that they gave us? And they're like, it's gone. It's just gone. Just disappeared. You know, hundreds of millions of marks. You know, so it's, you know, and I don't think that, you know, Obama gave, you know, given those condescending speeches about how Russia is not a serious power and, you know, they don't sit at the big table. And I always remind people of Putin's 2007, for people, for people who are surprised by Putin's attitude in his speech the other day, I always remind them to go listen to his 2007 Munich Security Conference speech where, you know, Putin had voiced, you know, some opposition to, you know, the handling of the war in Kosovo and uh, wasn't on board with the Iraq invasion, but he'd kept things pretty, pretty in check. Uh, and he just, have you, have you ever listened to that? Yeah. So the one in Munich yeah. in uh, February, 2007. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, he just where, where laces he... into him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've listened to that. It's definitely important. He basically says, um, he basically calls out the West for not, um, um, abiding by the assurances that they they uh, that they um, made. He lists his grievances about the Warsaw Pact and the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact and the West not um, honoring the agreements they made with the Soviet Union. And and every time that he has met with U.S. leaders, I don't I don't know that this was the case with with Trump, but certainly uh, all of Obama's advisors and Obama himself said every time they talked to Putin, it was the same list of grievances. So the fact that all through this time, he's been saying the same thing, 
and you won't do things like rule out Georgia or Ukraine's NATO membership. You won't agree to the Finlandization of, of some, some country that's obviously far more important to Russia's strategic security than the United States'. It's questionable whether we need to be in Europe at all. You know, you know what's real interesting? So um, I was talking to some of my friends yesterday, and um, a lot of my a lot of my friends are are Republican patriots. You know, they're, they're right; they lean right. They're not overly politically, but you know, they vote Republican pretty much down the board. And um, you know, they like the military. They um, like reading like Lone Survivor and and um, No Easy Day, like you know these books about Navy SEALs, and you know they you know they're America, fuck yeah type people. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to my buddy, and he was like, um, "I was like, what do you think about Ukraine?" He's like, "Honestly, I don't really care about Ukraine. Like, I don't really want to fight Russia over that." And he was like, um, "I I find a lot more wrong with like the Biden administration than Russia." And I think that's a sentiment that is kind of, that that is across the right wing of uh, of American politics right now is like you know what um, we don't really care about NATO or anymore like we're way more worried about domestic policy issues right now and we were burnt so bad in the Iraq War that we're we're not ready to believe it and in order to get a war. You really need to sell the right wing of America to do it because they're the ones who usually fight those wars and they're not able to do it like they I don't think they're going to be able to sell the right wing on on this war. If you look at like a lot of major right wing influencers right now on Twitter, like um, like Mike Cernovich or um, Candace Owens, uh, they're like. What like we don't care about this like yeah he's a bastard he's a bad guy no one likes him we're happy we, he's not the leader of our state but you know what it's really not worth going to war with him over this I don't know have you have you seen that or I don't know what oh your... yeah oh yeah yeah and and I, I want to be clear because a lot of times the that's turned into they'll try and it'll yes like Donald Trump's CPAC comments are already being taken out of context to be like see. He's so glad that Putin is gobbling up Ukraine. And it's like, you know what? I agree. You should be careful how you phrase things. But at the same time, we should not pretend like Donald Trump is cheering on Vladimir Putin as he swallows up this country. Like, Yeah. And, and I don't politics. think Republicans are cheering either. I don't think they're cheering either. I just think that the Republicans really feel betrayed from the Bush years. Um they're very concerned when you when you when you look at Republican polls and, and things of like what they list as their primary concern. Increasingly, it's social and cultural issues. It's foreign policy issues are way, way down the list. You know, you rewind the clock 15, 20 years. That just was not the case. 30 years. You know, they were a very aggressive, militaristic. We're about to kick in your doors. Don't even don't even think about it. You know what I mean? Like, I know a lot of this stuff happened under Clinton, but a lot of the forces were domestic, and Clinton was not a not a brave or visionary guy. Yeah, Dick Morris told him what the polls said to do, and he tried to do the most popular thing, and that's how he was able to duck and dodge scandals and stay in office, and, you know, I really, I really think there was so little thought paid to what the Russians really thought about any of this, and I don't think they cared. I think there was a tremendous amount of arrogance. Um involved in it even though you had very sober and concerned cold warrior types 
telling you, don't do this. Don't do this. This would be a mistake. You know, not that you didn't have people on the other side saying, oh, you need to let them in and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. It's the, the stuff on the ground. As far as polling goes, I, I would obviously the, I was sketching out some sort of like diagrams of like how these different things could play out. So right now I, I kind of see things turning into a little bit of a quagmire here. Um, Putin wants to talk. Uh, so I feel like on Monday, there, there's really two, two ideas here. One, if you're Zelensky and you think you're going to win, you should try and prolong the conflict. Or if you want it to end, which hopefully he does, got to offer Putin some way to climb down because Putin has put himself out there at this point where I don't know that he has a choice other than to keep this going until he gets what he wants, even if it means escalating the situation. Because he has he has basically cut him and all his cronies off from all their stuff in the West and is going to make things very difficult at home for them. So, like, they really need to make sure that they have their own positions secure. And if, if they lose... And by lose, I mean do not succeed in getting what they want out of this very, very aggressive and illegal move. I think that could be the end for for Putin and for his inner circle. Well, you know a guy who I've been paying attention to lately, like a who's been really correct on a lot of stuff. Um, Clint Ehrlich. Have you heard of him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. this guy, Clint Ehrlich, he, I guess he was a researcher at... Um, MGIMO, which I think is um, Moscow, stands for Moscow University something, but he's, you know, a Russia expert. He speaks Russian and he, um, I think he owns like a blockchain crypto company now, but he has been commentating as Russia, as Russia, on Russia as mainly a public service. And a lot of the predictions that he's made over the past uh, two months or so have been correct. He has been on Tucker Carlson, and I think that's where people where he got famous. And basically, after that, he was called a Russian agent. People are like, "Oh, Tucker Carlson had this Russian agent on his show, just preaching Russian propaganda." And if you see what he says, he's not Russian propaganda at all. He he condemns Vladimir Putin a lot. He's um, what he would say would not be allowed on Russian state television right now. No, and. Um, I watched that, yeah. This part of a partisan politics of, like, you know, everyone's a Russian agent. You know, that's kind of a narrative that's going on right mm-hmm. now between, um, you know, groups like um, the Palmer Group or, Demo- you know, these Democratic think tank mm-hmm. groups oh, yeah. that are like, oh, Republicans are working for Putin. They sound yeah. just ridiculous because right it's now— It's a new McCarthyism. Yeah, but you right can't now, say anything sane. It's like 9-11. It'd be like trying to say, uh, maybe we shouldn't invade Iraq. You know, people got called traitors, cowards, you know. It's so crazy because who in America is pro-Putin? Like, who actually is like, oh, man, I love myself some Vladimir Putin. He's such an awesome guy. <laughs> in, the 19, in, like, the 1940s, I understand where, I'm not saying that McCarthyism was right or anything right now, but there actually was a communist movement in the United States in the mm-hmm. early half of the 20th century. Like, there was, like, a movement that was sympathetic to Stalin. There was a mm-hmm. movement that was sympathetic to the Chinese communists. There was a movement that was, like, 
you know, a lot more than now were were actually like communist in the nineteenth in the early part of the twentieth century. Um, mm-hmm. I understand that, um, but there's no ideology behind Putin that people are really behind. Like he's not a communist; he's a you know just an autocrat. He's an autocratic, um, you know, orthodox Christian um, kind of centrist politician dictator. There's no like ideology behind him besides like I don't know maybe Eurasianism. I don't even know if you would call him a Eurasianist. Like the you know the the the, the belief that you know Europe the Eurasia should kind of become their own union type thing. Like I don't know if he even strongly believes in that. I know that's a movement in Russian politics that, mm-hmm. um, but no American would even would ever like. Oh man, I really believe in Eurasianism. That Eurasia, <laughs> that there should be a greater Eurasia. There's, it's just such a insane statement to start calling people puppets of Vladimir Putin. Um, th- th- like no, there there is no, there's just really no link there besides some f- stupid Facebook ads, and um, you know maybe criticizing U.S. policy decisions that led to this. There, there's no like real broad sympathetic movement towards Vladimir Putin in the United States. It just doesn't exist, and it's just well, crazy. And, and, and I, here's the most dangerous thing. The, the most dangerous thing is that talks that should happen between Russia and United States diplomats, that, that's condemned as like capitulating to Putin and working for Putin. And those are conversations that need to happen for for the safety of the world. Like we're talking about two countries that have the ability to annihilate the world, you know, how many, I don't know, X amount of times over and over again. And um, we should be talking to them. We shouldn't have a hostile relationship with them because... I think most people would agree that they don't want to die in a nuclear hell flame. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart 
and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Yeah, I think if you if you held a poll, most people would, would agree. Like, do I you want to die? <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the problem here is there's nothing new under the sun. The way that Trump got treated when he started running was the same way Nixon got treated. Okay. Now, Nixon wanted to do something unheard of. He wanted to reach out, right? Legitimize communist governments and just have relations with them. He was he was called every name under the sun by the still predominant. We have to remember the Democrats were still in the ascendancy like they controlled pretty much all the levers except the White House. Right. They held Congress, all the key committees all the way up into the 90s. Right. So he came under a lot of pressure for what he did. And that's why they started talking about the imperial presidency. It's because he couldn't trust his bureaucracy, his deep state that he inherited to carry out what he wanted them to do. Because Truman was just FDR, who was Eisenhower, who was Kennedy, who was Johnson, right? They're all the same. Liberal internationalism, right? Nixon was the first one who was like, you know, NATO doesn't pay for itself, you know? Why don't we have relations uh, with China? What, it's communist? We can use them to, to balance against the Russians. Okay, so when Trump gets on the campaign trail and he starts saying things like, Putin, you know, uh, strong guy, good leader, you know, what, what do you want him to say? I hate the Russians. I'll bomb them more than the other guy. No, he recognized, Trump recognized that liberal internationalism was a broken dead end, that the unipolar moment was over. Okay, so basically, I think the reason that there's so much of that, they're fascists, they're authoritarians, they're Putins, is because the liberal movement in America, which produced liberal internationalism, the belief that only democratic countries are good, and that if all countries were democracies, that would maximize U.S. security, that policy undermined liberalism at home. It produced the conditions to make Donald Trump. Selling out our working class was how we got other countries to do what we wanted by using favorable uh, trade practices, right? We subsidized the creation of middle classes around the world, okay, right? And then destroyed the confidence that the people had in the government because it turned out oh they lied about this lied about that I, I can't even say how bad the war on terror and and the response and the war in iraq and the lies like just how damaging that was to the country it really was i mean it destroyed the republican party it opened up that vacuum for trump to step in there and the the liberal domestic critics hate him um because he doesn't share their view of the world, which is that every country needs to be just like us. Like liberal internationalism is just another form of imperialism. You, it you is know what's funny? We found the best way, and everybody else needs to be like us. You know, you know what's real funny? So you know the wars and the war in Iraq. I, yeah, I agree a hundred percent that almost that destroyed any type of credibility that the government has when when um, justifying a war. And it turns out that what our intelligence agencies were saying this time was correct and nobody believed them including myself yeah. the cia director is william burns and william burns is the guy who famously wrote that memo yet means yet um you know talking about russia's red line about ukraine joining nato 
So he's actually a legitimate Russian Russia expert. So I think that was really the blind spot. Like the intelligence that the Biden administration was getting was actually was actually correct. Um, but it just goes to show you that it's like a boy cries wolf. You know, you don't. What's believe funny? Him. Yeah, and but what's telling though is that now that we know that they knew all of this, to me, it it just it's it's a ludicrous indictment of their policy that they weren't willing to say something totally reasonable to prevent thousands of people from dying. I know it's Putin issues. Putin issued the maximalist demands right in December. These are not really what he wants, right? That's his maximalist position. So you can negotiate on things like arms and stuff, but what he really, all he really wanted to hear was Ukraine's not going to be in NATO. And that's all he had to say. You could have said, and you could have just said, you didn't even have to make it something, you know, super official, you know, maybe eventually you get it on paper for him, you know, but say something like, you know, as President Putin well knows, because of Russian actions in uh, the Donbass region, Ukraine will not ever be eligible for NATO membership because of his actions. That's all he had to say. And instead it was like, yeah, we don't rule out any country. Oh, your concerns? Uh, yeah, we're... Yeah, we're 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 thinking about those. Maybe we can maybe we can fit something in later. And the whole time just saying, you know, banging the drum that like Russia's gonna invade, Russia's gonna invade. And it's like, if you really know that Russia is about to invade this country, why are you not doing more to resolve the main issue here? I mean, I I'm not entirely sure when you look at who Biden is surrounded by, it's all Obama people, which are all just Clinton people. I'm not entirely sure they didn't want to see Ukraine get invaded. That sounds terrible. But when you look at all they had to say was just acknowledge a reality on the ground, just say it. Is that so terrible a cost? I mean, did the Obama administration rolling over in 2014 destroy the credibility of U.S. security guarantees to NATO? No. No, it didn't. Even though Russia already violated uh, the Budapest Memorandum in 2014-2015. So to me, it it made no sense. This was a, a, I mean, obviously Putin invaded the country. Putin is in the wrong. I hope no one's confused about my position on that. But when I look at our own policies, I just do not understand what the purpose of this was if it wasn't to see whether or not the Russians might just go over the edge. Do you think that Trump, if uh, Trump was president, they would have invaded. This this would have happened because that's the question, question that's really going around. Okay, so I heard Trump uh, saying, you know, if if he had been uh, in charge, if you were in the White House, this would not have happened. I actually agree with him, uh, but not for the reasons that Trump himself gave. What, uh, what were his reasons? Because um, because he's so tough. Yeah, because so <laughs> because I am so tough. Exactly, and Biden is so weak. Well, uh, well, no, what well, I hold what on I one think second. it was. Did you hear the story about him saying that? It's like when I was talking to Putin, I told him if you invade Ukraine, I would nuke Moscow. And then he said the same things. Like I told President Xi, if they invade Taiwan, I'll I'll I'll, I'll nuke uh, Beijing. And um, I don't know if that's true or not. I really see don't think that happened at all. I hope it didn't. I can't imagine that happening. That would just be outrageous. I do remember a Twitter uh, exchange where Donald Trump was like. 
threatening threatening to like demolish North Korea. Uh, I do remember that. Uh, that Which, happened. Did you see? Did you see that they that they fired a missile near Japan this morning while all this oh, was going no, on? Oh no, I did not see that yeah, at all. Did. That's not good. They Jesus did. Christ. Um, I know. This this will be this will actually lead into another question I'm going to ask you about China. But let's talk about Trump okay. first. Okay, so Trump. So why why do I think it would have been far less likely and probably not to happen? Well, I think it's because even though Donald Trump was forced to go along with a lot of things that Congress wanted to do with regards to Russia, Donald Trump was fundamentally fundamentally skeptical about NATO. He was fundamentally skeptical about democracy promotion. And Trump was one of a host of leaders. Uh, and, and so Victor Orban, um, you had Sil- Silvio Berlusconi, who's always been very, very sympathetic. Um, you have Marine Le Pen. You had uh, the UKIP, Boris Johnson, Brexit. I think Putin saw Trump as the leading edge of a shift away from an old policy that was going to take pressure off of, off of Russia. And so then you can say, well, okay, did he did 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 Putin fear the loss of of NATO really? Because that's a pretext for him maintaining his iron grip on the state, or did he see uh, Biden's return and Biden did that big, America's back, baby. We were never really gone, and we're here to lead the free world. And you better believe everybody better be on the lookout because we're back. And Putin basically saw that along with the attempted color revolution in. Uh, in uh, Belarus and then the potential one in Kazakhstan, I think he realized that, um, again, I thought that he was just going to make official, more or less, what already existed on the ground. That is, recognizing the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Um, Again, the invasion... uh, I don't know. It, it feels very desperate. It feels very desperate, especially with the way things are going now. And I don't think that he would have felt that same level of pressure had Trump been in the White House, because I don't think Trump had a hard on him on for him the way that like Biden and Clinton, when she was secretary of state, did. The Democratic establishment really, you know, their whole new paradigm for understanding both international politics and domestic politics is liberalism versus authoritarianism democracy versus authoritarianism and anyone who doesn't fit into their definition of what uh, a democrat should look like what a democratic society should look like is automatically some shade of authoritarianism the polls for example yeah the polls are authoritarians to to a lot of them uh the hungarians also authoritarians you know um and it's, it's just the, the, the Sweden Democrats, you know, like just outrageous stuff, totally unproductive. Um, and it's, it's one of the reasons I think Trump, again, had to rely on people outside the bureaucracy. You know, you, you, you can't rely on institutions that have their own priorities and their own logics. I can't remember who it was, but it said, but it was, uh, I think it was John Mearsheimer said, uh, Liberal internationalism is like a full empo- full employment policy for like all the Harvard and Yale people people graduating with like degrees in political science and international relations, you know, at the think tanks and at the State Department. So when Trump came in and, and wanted same with Erdogan, Erdogan is another one that draws a lot of criticism here uh, among Democrats and stuff. 
Trump said the same thing. You know, a uh, tough, tough leader, strong guy. It's like, let's not forget, he is a NATO member. Like, we don't need to be undermining his position. Like, obviously, we're not super happy about all the things that he does domestically. But at the end of the day, I just look at stuff like that, and it's so what? What are what are we supposed to do about it? Hey, how so much are we supposed to sacrifice? You want to hear to make something? Sure that every country everywhere. You want to hear something really interesting? So John Mearsheimer, um, did you see that speech that he did or that lecture on why is Ukraine's why Ukraine is the West's fault? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It I've read all his books. Ten yeah. million views right now. Which is so funny because like a few months ago it probably didn't even have like a. <laughs> 10, I listened to this thing years ago. <laughs> this this is an old lecture, and I listened to this yeah. a long time ago. And I was like, "Oh, this is this is this makes a lot of sense." This ten million views are on this right now. So I mean, that's good because basically everything yeah. he says right there is right is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I should pay a lot more attention to like the realist, um, you know, Chicago school. I guess the. Um, what a lot of uh, Republicans are saying right now. And, and I just want to point out that I'm saying when we say like the Republicans or the right lane, or at least what I'm saying is that um, the voting base doesn't really want to vote a war over with Russia. The Republican establishment is in lockstep with the Democrats right now. Like there's virtually no difference between what they want mm-hmm. foreign policy wise. Um, they're, they're both uh, it's bipartisan, this policy in, in, in White House. But the Republican mm-hmm. base, like the people who you know, who are from the the parts of the country that sign up for the military and say, I want to dedicate my life to protecting American values. I don't think they're down for this at all. Um, but what do you think is to the argument is that, oh, they wouldn't cross Trump because, you know, he had guys like John Bolton and his staff, like real <laughs> insane people. Um, and, and, you know, there was this argument when he when he hired John Bolton, or he brought John Bolton into his cabinet. Everyone was like, if he ran on being, you know, non-interventionist, and this is like one of the biggest psychopaths mm-hmm. in Washington. Yeah. Um. So it must just be like a deterrent because you have this guy in your in your cabinet, and it means that you're not going to fuck around. You know, this is uh this is a guy who's willing to destroy the world. Um. I don't know. What do you think of that? I think it fit perfectly with Trump's just kind of modus operandi, which was, sure, let's see what happens. Let's throw him in there and see what happens. And, you know, he wound up getting marginalized and booted. You know, I think Trump just thought, hey, here's a wild card. Let's see what happens. You know, he was getting pressed to to put some more aggressive people in there. And so he did and thought the guy was a nut and booted him out. Rightly so. (laughs) Rightly so. I don't know. Yeah, I I mean, it was a big, uh, I think he donated. Um, like $400 million to the Republicans uh, in the midterm elections. And it was based off uh, the stipulation if Trump brought him into his cabinet. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, there you go. I mean, and it, it goes to show you, though, that Trump was very skeptical of that kind of stuff. I mean, we've talked about how he would, how to this day, you know, Colin Powell dies and he's on Twitter just putting him on blast, you know? I mean, Donald Trump definitely speaks for the average Republican voter, I think. Uh, you mentioned there's a lot of, like, media people. You mentioned, uh, I think, Tucker and uh, Candace Owens. They're by no means uh, singular. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's it's definitely 
there's definitely an interesting disconnect and i i would be interested in like a by the numbers vote of like elected republican officials like just how many of them are truly on board with this like if they had the say but i think we both know that as far as congress goes there is a very very small group of congress people and senators from both sides who make all of the relevant decisions and craft all of the relevant policies and if you want to get a committee assignment you will sit down and shut up that's pretty much how that works so i don't know you know given you know anonymity you know the ability to just say yeah my constituents told me they don't give a shit about this but you know if i want to get on the armed services committee and get some appropriations money i need to go along with this you know what i mean it's one of the big problems is people face individual incentive structures that don't always align them with what's best for the American voter. I think this happens a lot when you have people who, I find this tends to happen a lot in foreign policy circles. Our experts tend to be people who really love the country in question and have spent a great deal of time there and have made a lot of friends there and have come to like, you know, not like to use the expression like going native or something, but like they tend to lose sight of like, what real American national interests are. You know what I mean? Because it gets tied up in the welfare of other people and what would be best for, you know, people outside of the United States, right? When really, our elected officials are there to promote our interests. And, you know, if you want to think of uh, liberal internationalism as like social engineering on a grand scale, I think that's pretty appropriate. And as far as Putin's ideology goes... Putin uh, is like an old-school Russian imperialist, you know? He looks at the map and sees areas that were Russia's till about 10 minutes ago, and if not for some very uh, shoddy diplomatic work and some really aggressive uh, moves by your opponent, you know, would still be yours. And so, you know, I think Putin sees things as changeable. Um, I, I don't know that he would have felt as threatened had there been a big neutral block of countries there where, like, the U.S. just kind of looked the other way if they were, like, meddling a little bit in, like, Georgian politics or Ukrainian politics, which, like, frankly, I'm fine with that. I mean, I am a realist, and I'm also very pragmatic, as you know. Um, and I just look at that stuff and is like, was this worth it? You know, if this goes even further, I mean, was, was all this worth it? Ukraine was never going to join the, you know... The alliance anyway it's, so. it's it's crazy because you know what i thought and here's why i miscalculated everything this is what i really thought that putin's strategy was not to recognize the donbass region it was more so to keep ukraine divided and kind of broken you know with mm -hmm. that kind of animosity yeah. between russians and, and ukrainian speakers and i thought that's what he wanted he wanted to break ukraine and have like kind of a dysfunctional state next to him rather than just like a another two russian satellite states but you know i thought because now if you if you recognize the two you know uh the two breakaway republics now ukraine becomes more ukrainian nationalist like there's a larger mm -hmm. tilt yeah. in favor of ukrainians so now you have a more hostile state on your yeah. on your border so that, that's really what I kind of miscalculated. And I guess I projected what I thought would be the best move into his, onto you know, what he thought or what was in his brain. And it turned out that I guess he did really, really thought uh, 
he thought differently. Like he, he thought that Ukrainian government in Kiev was a real accident, like a real threat. And, and I just, I don't see how I'm trying to like imagine a way where this, this, um, this, this turns into a good situation. And I just, I'm really having a hard time. Like, will a peace deal like right now it doesn't i don't get the sense that Zelensky's leaving you know like i feel like no. he's kind of implanted himself he did the correct thing politically what not leaving and you know he's on the street with the national guard and he's mm-hmm. you know it's he's saying i'm going down with the ship yeah like i'll i'll die i'll i'll let them execute me um i don't know if if the russians captured kiev what they would do with Zelensky if they would have a public trial it's just like the way that they frame it a denazification um like are they just going to take off take some azov battalion members and they're just going to have some public trials and execute them like cuz you know one of the key things that he had mentioned in his speech was the odessa fire and the odessa fire was when um uh, there was a there was a russian protest uh, a pro russian protest and a bunch of ukrainian nationalists locked them in a building and burnt them alive so that's what he was talking about um in, in, as far as massacre so is he going to like I guess it's well known who those people who did that are. So is he just going to find them and and uh, try them? I, I just don't know what his goal is. Like it, it's so Med, it sounds Medvedev, so vague. Medvedev t- just today said that the death penalty was going to go back on the table uh, potentially. So I think they might already be setting the groundwork there for you know some death sentences to come down. Putin, uh, you know, says he, that they know who who's who. And I mean, frankly, there, there's so much history between those two countries, between the oligarchs, between the security services. I have very little doubt that Putin's intelligence of what goes on in Ukraine is far better than ours. Um, so, um, yeah, I definitely Zelensky has been, uh, you know, very brave and, uh, you know, uh, I obviously don't want anything bad to happen to anyone over there. Yeah, uh, the best case scenario I think is is the status quo antebellum. Uh, you know, Russian forces withdraw. Um, Ukraine assumes like an officially neutral like Finland status, and uh, as a guarantee, as like a as like a guarantee, uh, Luhansk and Donetsk uh, remain independent, only recognized by Russia and maybe the handful of states in its orbit. And uh, I think that's really the best you can hope for at this point, you know, and people will accuse you of like, uh, you know, oh, a new Yalta, you know, it's like, you know, like 80 million people died in World War Two. Was Yalta really that bad? Was avoiding 100 million deaths really that bad? Should we have just fought it out? It's just ridiculous. You know, speaking as someone whose family had like yours, people fight and die and then get recalled to do it again in Korea. Uh, I can tell you there was not a lot of enthrallment, especially because among my family, there was a very strong isolationist streak. Um, My family, my grandpa, essentially viewed all the problems of Europe as a result of U.S. meddling from the get-go. If you think about World War I uh, and Wilson's decision to intervene, that war was a complete stalemate. If anything, the Germans probably would have came out on top in a negotiated peace. Instead, the U.S. enters the war needlessly, crushes the Germans along with the Allies, then leaves. The Allies punish the hell out of Germany. Hitler comes along, 
right? Like, this, and now the U.S. has to go back and fight uh, Hitler. You know, my, my grandpa basically looks at it and looked at it, and he's passed away now. But he basically said, "Look, if we had never gotten involved in European affairs to begin with, the whole 20th century would have been totally different." All of this came from that initial desire to get involved in European affairs, to make what America said of weight on the world stage. And, uh, you know, Wilson was like, you know, I think I think Wilson's legacy is pretty well known. Right. Uh, You know, he was an early League of Nations guy. Uh, He wasn't able to get the Congress to uh, to ratify it, of course. But no, I, I think there's a lot to be said about that. Anytime you do something, anytime a state, especially one with the kind of power the United States has, anytime it chooses to do something, I think we need to have more appreciation of the possible consequences and the fact that most of the time the people who bear those consequences are not the citizens of the United States, but the citizens of countries who are subject to U.S. interest. Especially over the last 30, 40 years, if your country was unlucky enough to become an area of interest for the United States security and military establishment, very bad things happen to your country. And I don't care if you were in Africa, the Middle East, Latin America. I don't see that we've done anything worthwhile or helpful in the last 30 years. And I think we did a lot of very questionable things before that. And I think probably the best foreign policy is one that works on building a truly admirable society here, one that encourages other countries to strive towards building and developing their own open institutions that can provide prosperity to their people. But there are obviously you know, a lot you, of things weighing against that. It, it's funny because you know who's calling for a peace? Like an immediate peace, the Taliban. I know, I saw that. <laughs> I saw that the Taliban will broker the peace. That would just be the uh, Kandahar conference. Where the Kandahar conference. That'd be great. The Kandahar conference where the Taliban negotiate a new new world order. And it's like <laughs> one that, that leads the world into 50 years or like 100 years of peace and prosperity. The, pa- the, Taliban the Pax Talibana. Nobody quote that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you would want to ask me terrorists. something about China, I remember. Oh, yeah. So I want to ask you. You're still, you're still good. I know we've been recording for an hour and 40 mm-hmm. minutes. You're oh, yeah, still you're good? fine. Okay, oh, yeah. so um, I really want to get your insight on this because this is this is something that now seems like because we, we sp- spoke about this. We did an entire episode on this, the likelihood on China invading Taiwan, and um, you know, I I kind of I really don't know where I fit. I know Danny his his take is that Taiwan would be able to defend itself if that happened, and. Um, you know, my take is kind of unknown. I, I really don't know what's going to happen. Do you think that this will embolden China to launch an invasion of Taiwan and finally, uh, you know, uh, commit to that one China policy? I've been thinking a lot about this the last few days, and I've been watching for any statements that they make, and I thought it was telling that their their statements throughout have been just trying to walk the tightrope on the one hand saying of course we support ukraine's territorial integrity and of course we acknowledge russian security concerns in the region and then they abstained from the vote uh, at the u.n security council so to me it's very clear that china is in a difficult position and doesn't really kind of just wants this to go away kind of 
Um, I think they see this as a potentially very dangerous and destabilizing event, and they don't want to get drawn into it. I know, uh, you know, the Biden administration has several times now publicly said, you know, this is China's chance to side with, you know, the liberal international order. And as far as Taiwan goes, I don't think this changes the calculus necessarily. Uh, I think it hasn't gone very well, and I think Chinese strategic planners will take notes on why it hasn't gone well in terms of like logistics like there are reports again it's hard to know exactly what's going on on the ground but like reports of like the russians like running out of gas running low on rockets you know just which we had talked about in 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 the context of the taiwan invasion the challenge of logistics of maintaining an operation like that over time um yeah uh, i don't know that it changes the fundamental calculation for for beijing which is that Taiwan can't declare its independence that will provoke a response I, I think that's pretty much set um, I don't think that the sanctions that got placed on Russia are something that China would expect as you saw it was very difficult to get these sanctions in place in the first place on Russia and Russia invaded another country. Uh, China would not be invading another country. China is also way more important to the global economy than Russia. Yes, I know Russia is important for, uh, you know, Europe's gas. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, there are alternate reserves. You know, there are things that can be done about that. And ultimately, you know, it, it, he did invade your next door neighbor. China's not going to invade the next door neighbor. China is going to invade an island many thousands of miles away that is right off of its coast. Possibly. Possibly. If Taiwan declared independence, I have no doubt that Beijing would respond with a strategy of area denial. We've talked about in the episode that you referenced the challenges to executing uh, a strategy of area denial just yesterday, maybe to kind of posture a little bit the u.s sailed a ship through the taiwan straits you know they hadn't done that in months either so i thought the timing was very conspicuous maybe a sort of a don't even think that we've taken our eye off you over here which is another just terribly alarming thing and i've, I've written plenty about my thoughts on u.s involvement in, in taiwan and uh how inappropriate I, I feel it is but uh I don't think this changes the calculation in Beijing. I think Beijing is pretty willing to wait at this point. As I said, I think the, the relative weight of China as it grows in proportion to the relative strength of the United States in Southeast Asia, I think China recognizes that Taiwan will naturally just fall more and more under its influence. I know lately their politics have been trending more toward independence, but uh, as long as China can can maintain internal cohesion and keep the economic growth coming, both of those are big ifs, mind you, and there are serious headwinds to both those things happening. I think Beijing is willing to be patient if Taiwan is willing to not pull the trigger on independence. And long term, you know, it's, it's hard to know whether or not the U.S. is going to be a presence in Southeast Asia. I know that sounds very strange, especially maybe to older listeners, um, you know, who remember the Philippines being an active colony. But 
I, I look at, I'm, I'm actually reading a new book right now about, uh, uh, who's it by? Some strategic planning institute, To Rule the Waves is what it's called, but it's basically about a hypothetical conflict in the South China Sea. But, um, you know, you look at that area over there and especially because of trade, uh, boy. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. I know that the TPP, which was the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a free trade deal that Clinton and Obama had worked out, was not perfect and probably would have led to some industrial job losses. But at the same time, if you are someone who's worried about China, if you are a China hawk, if you're a China container, you should have wanted the U.S. in the TPP more than anything else. Because that is the largest single economic free trade zone in the world now. And it comprises all the major economies of Southeast Asia and Latin America in North America, except the United States. The United States is not in it, even though it basically wrote the rules for the game. And instead, China is applying for membership. And if China gets in long term, the U.S. will get pushed right out of that region. And that'll be that'll pretty much be game over. So They, they used the same language. So Biden said, or Blinken, whatever. Blinken is kind of a Biden guy. I feel, I feel like Blinken really does... Um, serve Biden's interest. Um, you know, that's why he was brought on board because of their relationship. But um, he has used the same words to describe the relationship with uh, Taiwan and Ukraine. And that word is ironclad. So they basically came out and said, hey, U.S. commitment to uh, Taiwan is ironclad. And they said the U.S. commitment to Ukraine is ironclad. Well, certainly doesn't look too ironclad right now in Ukraine. Um, well, I, I feel like it has showed up big time and that's what really worries me is because when the Budapest, the Budapest memorandum didn't guarantee armed U.S. intervention in the event of Russian aggression, what it was meant to do was provide an assurance that the Ukrainians would have a legitimate outlet to demand international support in the event of the violation of their, of their sovereignty which Putin views has already, in Putin's eyes, Ukraine's sovereignty and independence was already violated numerous times by the United States. 
in 2004 and in 2014. Okay. So when he goes and violates, uh, you know, Ukraine's uh, borders, then Ukraine turned and asked for assistance. And so that was kind of how the Obama administration and now the Biden administration has been able to legitimize the giving of a great deal of aid and military hardware and pressuring NATO members to go to the rescue of this country who don't have the right to a security guarantee, but who I think the U.S. has pushed the envelope very, very far on this. I mean, this is a pretty provocative move. Putin has stated, we have a security interest in this country. It's a threat to us. We're moving in to take it out. And the U.S. and its allies, this rival security military alliance, is funneling tons of, like, anti-tank weapon missiles. I mean, we're talking we're not talking about small arms here. We're talking about serious hardware. This is terribly provocative in my mind. I'm not saying the Ukrainians don't on paper have the right to it. My preference was that we not pump more arms into Ukraine. I wrote this months ago because I said, "Look, if Putin is feeling threatened, the last thing that we should start doing is pumping tons of weapons in there." And of course, that's not what we wound up doing. But I feel similarly about the Taiwan situation. This is a, an ongoing Chinese civil war that would have ended 60 or 70 years ago if not for the threat of armed U.S. intervention. Over what? Over what? Defense of a corrupt Republican government who, you know... What? 70 years ago? This is still impairing our, our relations? Threatening conflict between nuclear-armed powers? And it doesn't seem like there's very much of a good faith effort to try and manage and negotiate settlements that would be actually acceptable to, frankly, rival great powers who are asking for a small sphere of influence. I think the Chinese ministry is dead right when, you know, uh, they say, you know, there's actually uh, no risk of incident uh, in the Gulf of Mexico because uh, you won't find any Chinese warships there. All they're asking for, in the case of Russia and China, I don't buy into either of those. You talked about Gary Kasparov's book about Putin's going to conquer all of the West. It's a bunch of fear-mongering. I've never seen anything that even remotely convinces me that that is an accurate description of what he thinks it's realistic for him to do. Saying that in his ideal world, he would rule the world is completely ridiculous. What power-hungry lunatic, which is basically every leader, they're just in variously constrained circumstances. You really think if you gave Biden a magic lamp and said, if you rub this, all countries will become democracies just like you want. You think he wouldn't do it? Of course he would. And so the question is, what counts as a legitimate security concern to other countries like Russia and China? And, you know, I get hit with the appeaser thing all the time because I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that other countries don't want U.S. destroyers and aircraft carriers and radar stations and missiles sitting all along their border. I mean, just look at Russia. Just look at how NATO has moved right up to its borders. I mean, it's, it's surrounded by enemy, by enemy bases. And if you know very well that if the Canadians tomorrow signed an agreement for basing rights with the Chinese in Quebec... The U.S. wouldn't give two shits about 
Canadian sovereignty or right to choose military alliances. They'd lose their minds and tell them absolutely not, right? You know, um, it's interesting. I've been hit with that too. Calling uh, People have called me an appeaser. And what I say back to them, I said, hey, listen, you call me whatever, but even in the Cold War, like the most hawkish Cold Warriors understood their policy was containment, not ex- expansion. So like what we've been doing is that we've been putting our our defensive alliance in air quotes because, you know, a big part of the story is Kosovo in the Balkans wars yeah. when NATO, yeah. you know, officially changed from, I mean, not officially, I guess, but, you know, they, they, um, it was their first out of area mission. Yeah. They yeah. became a, an offensive alliance. Like there was no NATO country attacked in, in, um, in the Balkans wars and in either Kosovo or Bosnia, there was no NATO, but it was the, the pretext was, the people are being genocided and it's kind of like reverse Putin because that's his major pretext is that people are being genocided. People have been kind of living under really in the, in the Eastern breakaway republics, people have been, um, been shelled for like eight years. And, you know, there's been, I think around eight, 10,000 deaths or so. I'm not really Mm -hmm. sure at face value, you can take the casualty number, um, at heart, but you know, there, there, there are, people who are being killed um and i don't know if you could say it's a genocide where people you know russian people are going from door to door to russian's house and you know and and having these mass graves and stuff like that i don't think that image is going on but um it's certainly um he's using the same you know he's he's basically looked at u.s foreign policy over the past 30 years and saying hey why can't i do this like you yeah. guys have done Iraq, you guys have done Libya, you guys have done um, Kosovo, you've done all these wars, and why, why can't we do this? Especially this is because, on a border. Especially because there there was a real chance there. I thought that the Balkans wars, which these, it's actually kind of interesting. I was about seven when those were going on, and I just really wanted to know about those. And so I got like a bunch of books on that were written by like various participants. I remember one of them really well. It was about the fighter pilot who got shot down uh, enforcing the no fly zone uh, over uh, Bosnia. Uh, Scott O'Grady, I think his name was. But so I was really fascinated from that with that conflict. My family uh, actually immigrated from that area uh, about 100 years ago, uh, slightly more than 100 years ago, because it was still technically the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, But I thought that the Balkans wars, man, that really looked like a great opportunity there to let the partnership for peace give it a try. Because the whole thing was NATO needs to do it because the partnership for peace is just some talking shop and nobody can get anything done and people are dying. Well, yes, I mean, it's there was obviously a lot of propaganda going on. And I think you make a good point about like the reverse like genocide claims back and forth. That That's a good parallel, I think, with, with the Balkans conflict and in Kosovo. But I do think that that was an opportunity where rather than just using that pretense, however legitimate people may feel it was to try and stop the bloodshed in Bosnia, which it it wasn't super effective at doing anyway. I just think that that was a very narrow, even if you take it at the good intentions, face value, they just wanted to save lives. I think if they had taken a step back, and thought about what it meant for NATO 
to deploy out of area on an offense, really what could only be perceived as a pretty aggressive move. When at the same time, you've got people like Perry who are trying to get the partnership for peace working uh, using former NATO countries, former Warsaw Pact member countries. You had, you had uh, you know, NATO tr- member country troops, you know, operating jointly with, with Russian troops. You know, like there, there was a chance for it to work. And I know it wasn't working well, uh, but I, I just, I really look at that. That was such a, I know it sounds terrible because people were dying, but it was such a local small scale conflict. It would have been such an ideal situation for like a new pan, pan-European security architecture to like sort that out. And that would have been the U.S.'s chance to just step away. Because there there was goodwill on both sides. There were members on both sides, especially um, under the first Bush administration when, when you had like Baker and Scowcroft. They were much more amenable to doing some 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 joint work not pressing nato expansion and then under clinton obviously you had perry who was the the big pusher there but you had talbot and lake who were who were really gung-ho on that and i don't think we should you know discount the fact that a lot of other countries like ukraine really wanted nato membership and actually ukraine held out until pretty much like the last second they wanted to trade their nukes for nato membership this, this didn't happen until all the way, I think, God, it might have been Clinton's second term by the time they finally got it figured out. But that started under Bush, under the first Bush administration. And the Bush administration didn't want to, you know, give them any kind of assurances. They kind of just wanted the Russians to get the nukes. And, you know, so it, it was tough to get the Ukrainians to give up their nuclear weapons in exchange for less than a security guarantee. Um and the idea with part of the rationale for leaving the door open as far as NATO expansion went was that it would give the Ukrainians some peace of mind that like, look, we're, we gave you a little bit of a security guarantee here. The door is open to NATO. You know, you're not shut out. We're not forming a new Iron Curtain because that was the whole idea was, OK, maybe you have to let in Poland and Czechoslovakia the Czech Republic uh, sound like Cheney. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the Czechoslovakia. Uh, no, so maybe you have to let in a few countries. Maybe you feel morally that they earned it. I know that there was a lot of pressure when like Vaclav Havel and uh, Lech Walesa are like visiting the U.S. and like begging to be let into. I understand the moral argument and you know all the pressure that was on them there, but at the same time there was this group. And Cheney, who was at defense under under the first Bush, was really adamant about this, was that you can't expand NATO once. And if you expand it once, you have to do it with the with with everyone understanding that it's not going to stop there because they didn't want. And this is kind of ironic, blackly ironic because of how things turned out. But they were worried about a new Cold War line forming. That, like, if they said we're letting in three new members, that, boom, now there's a new Cold War line. And now it's on the border of Poland rather than Germany. And so, again, these are all just the rationales that went into the policy of NATO expansion that I do think caused a lot of trouble. And, you know, just liberal internationalism generally, you know, I think liberalism is is the best way to live. Personally, I would not want to live in a non-liberal state. I value freedom of speech, property, uh, religion. Um but at the same time, 
I don't know. From what you're saying, it sounds it sounds like you 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 prefer to live under uh, in in St. Petersburg. (laughs) Yep, you got me. You got me. I'm a I'm a I'm an authoritarian legalist at heart. Wait, I need to wait for my uh my Russian handler to for for my next segment. Yeah, I'm actually getting called. Uh, yeah, right now. No, it's it's definitely it. Especially with you know all the media circulating right now, I, I I try not to respond to anything. Just wait, you know, because half the time, you know, like I said, the yesterday morning waking up, or maybe it was two days ago. Now the days are kind of blurring together. But waking up to Zelensky tweeting like, "Good job, Turkey, yeah. block their fleet." It was like, "Oh my god," you know, it's, and like the right former now. U.S. ambassador is like retweeting it, and it's like, "Oh my god, it's happening." I'm looking right now and just like the latest update I've seen um, and you know this could be wrong is that Russia is firing ballistic missiles from Belarus into uh, an airport uh, maybe Clint Ehrlich tweeted this out so I tend to uh, I'm kind of he's kind of been my go-to guy mm-hmm. uh, I encourage people to follow this guy on Twitter and listen to his interviews um, they're He's been correct about most things that he said so far. He called the Russian invasion right before it happened. He's like, "This is, ha- I mean, this is going to happen." Um, damn, we've been going on for about two hours. Um, I could talk to you all day, obviously, but I think we should wrap this one up. Joe, is there anything? What? Let's let's do some plug-in. Where can we everyone find your work and follow you and um, you know get your articles? Um, what plug your stuff? Okay. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. You can find me there. Uh, you can go to my website, uh, jsmwritings.com. Um, you can find me at the Mises Institute, the Libertarian Institute. Um, I always, the Eurasian Review, I usually tweet like a link with, with my stuff. Uh, I've got a few papers coming out this week, uh, something in the Journal of the American Revolution, uh, something in the Journal of Libertarian Studies. So you'll, you'll see my stuff around. And if you follow me on Twitter, you can uh, get get those updates. So awesome! Well, yeah, everyone follow Joe. Joe's a professional, smart person, so it's always good to get his takes. Um, all right, thanks everyone for listening to another episode. Um, if you like this show, make sure you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. Um, you can also support us on our Patreon account, which is Patreon slash Bro History, where. Basically, our Patreon has been going off. It's on our Slack channel in Russia. Uh, we have a lot of real smart people in there who are who've been who've been covering everything, and I, I encourage people to join it. Um, and then, um, yeah, support us, listen to us. Our next Korean War. So, um, just everyone listening for for our schedule was kind of messed up a little bit. We we already we already recorded our Korean War uh, episode follow up. And we decided to push it back just because, you know, everything that's going on right now will, I guess we'll try to get back onto our normal schedule and release our follow-up um, about the uh, rise of Sigmund Rhee and the rise of South Korea. Um, that's a follow-up in our next uh, Korean War episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. And uh, thank you for listening. We always appreciate your time.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.